Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We've been very pleased and, of course, gratified that our podcasts are being received so enthusiastically. We've had requests to enable a way for listeners to have a conversation about episodes. We certainly welcome this idea and want to encourage those of you who do want to do that to do so on our forum so that the whole Uphill Athlete community can join in and benefit from this exchange. To do so, please start a new thread on the forum using the title of the podcast under the most appropriate category. Thanks for being part of this community. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Uphill Athlete Coach Nikki La Rochelle. And Nikki's got a little story for us about a recent schemo race that she was in. And um, I think there'll be some really interesting takeaways for folks about motherhood and training and racing and um, you know, those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for joining me, Nikki. Of course. Happy to talk with you, Scott. Well, I was surprised when I heard that you'd done this. Um, I didn't know you were back in, the, I mean, I knew you did one race earlier this year, but uh, that was something right in your own backyard. So it was probably fairly low key and easy for you to orchestrate. This is, this, the Grand Traverse is you know, more logistically more complicated and farther away and all that. So how did that, how did you handle all that? I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed. So. Oh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, you know, I actually have done a number of races this season. I did um, a handful of local small races and then a few bigger proper schema races. So um, I felt like I had a decent uh, race calendar under my belt going into the Traverse. And it, I mean, probably just to inform the audience, it's a point-to-point team race from Crested Butte to Aspen. It's about 40 miles long and the vertical's just around 7,000. So um, for those who are familiar with just the the metrics of that, it's a pretty flat course. Um, 7,000 isn't much for 40 miles. So it it truly is a traverse from one municipality to another. (laughs) And how long long has that race been been going on this was the 25th year so pretty long yeah Yeah. cool and um, how many times have you done it I have done it I believe this was my sixth I'm not great at keeping track of that sort of stuff I it's either my fifth or sixth and then uh, my husband Brad who I raced with it was his we think 12th 12th time that's very cool. Yeah, great to have something like that that you can look back on and have done so many times. What were conditions like this year? Oh, they were. So, I mean, one thing with the traverse is you're you're just looking at the weather many times a day the week before because 
for one, they have to turn the race around if the conditions aren't good. And whether that's avalanche danger or just poor weather during the race forecasted, they'll do a reverse course where you ski out to um, kind of the high point of the course, which is Star Pass, and then ski back to CB. That's called the Grand Reverse. Um, but so we're, we all want to go to Aspen. So we were watching the weather like a hawk and the weather looked good. It actually looked really warm, but um, the snow conditions were really tough. It was a lot of breakable crust, um, just horrendous skiing, <laughs> um, horrendous skating. Like uh, it's obviously faster to skate versus skin. So it's nice if there's a solid crust that you, a solid supportable crust you can skate on. But unfortunately it was, it was soft um, and collapsible and really difficult skating. Uh, and that was in this section, it's called East River. So it's, you start by skiing um, up through the Crested Butte uh, ski area, you descend and then go through an area called East River, which is really a river basin uh, that's off camber and it's pretty flat. But um, in this case, yeah, that collapsible, terrible skating going on. <laughs> So did, did at some point you reconsider and stop and put skins on or would it have been just about as miserable to skin in that breakable crust too? Yeah, Scott, that was a, a real um, exercising good race acumen in that moment because we were skating, but we noticed you're, you're kind of, this is why I love the Traverse because it's not, it's not this very clear cut schema race. There's a lot of deciding and pivoting you have to do during the race. So we were in about sixth place, but what I noticed skating was that being on top of other people's tracks, I think made it worse. It was like the track was disintegrating as we went. So I think it was supportable maybe for the first and second teams, but as more pressure was put on the snow, it was getting worse and worse. And I noticed I was, you know, you're only about an hour in and it's easily a, a seven plus hour race for most folks. So I, I said to Brad, I think we should skin because I could just tell I was burning up way too much energy, just going through those matches way too early. Um, and I, I think too, there's some strategy because you could tell everyone else around us was as well. So it seemed, it seemed prudent to me to just skin and use way less energy. So it was fun because Brad and I were one of the first teams in that group, that front group to switch over to skidding. Um, but what we noticed is we were leapfrogging with the teams that were skating and we weren't losing a whole lot of time, if any. So I think that was a good, a good call. Sounds like a really good call. And it's great that you had someone to compare yourself with, you know, they're someone who continued to skate and you were skinning and I'm sure it's much more efficient. Um, yes. Yeah, we would be, so we, we were, we were right in line with one part, another team who are our buddies and they would get ahead where the snow is supportable and fast and they'd shoot way out ahead. But then right when they hit some rotten snow or a steeper pitch and they had a sidestep or maneuver around sagebrush, we'd catch right back up to them. So we leapfrog for a few miles just like that. And in the end, that extra energy consumption that they were putting out, did that, or did you end up compared to them? We, we ended up beating that particular team by about 
15 to 20 minutes in the end. So, so it could have been that extra energy that they spent, perhaps. I think so. I, I think it could have been part of it for sure. Yeah. Cool. Was it your experience this year compared to previous years? Um, was this the worst conditions you've seen there? Yes, it was. Because, you know, the whole track, so there was that part that sucked my soul. <laughs> at the beginning it really was so tiring when we were skating and then the track um for the most part was super icy and it was that isothermic refrozen snow that um you know you couldn't hear your partner it was so loud just this refrozen snow and the track was so slippery so you'd be skidding along and even any increase in the the slope angle would your skins would slip and it just took so much energy. Your poles were breaking through <clears throat> the snow. And so you'd have the scenario where you'd be pulling and you just, your pole would punch through all the way down. And it just required so much stabilizing and balance and that type of energy, which I think is so fatiguing. Um, we, I've learned over the years with the Traverse to, I basically stopped training on piste here in Breckenridge. I, all of the month of March, I trained backcountry because of this very reason of knowing um, this is a fully backcountry race. And as such, I think there's a lot that you need to prepare for other than just pure fitness. It's all this like skating in terrible snow, skiing in breakable cross, skiing on bad tracks. Um, so that's what I really, I've, learn to focus on that going into this race. That sounds really smart. Um, yeah, it does sound quite different than a typical schemo race. Yeah. Usually in and around ski resorts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what were some of the other races you did leading into this one this, this winter? You know, I did the, um, uh, we have a municipal Oh, not municipal. I'm sorry. We have the A Basin series. So Arapahoe Basin is a ski area near here and they do a, I think it's six races that are about an hour to an hour and a half long. So I did, I think four of those. And then um, there's a race in, um, it's outside of Glenwood Springs, Colorado called the Heathen Challenge. I did that race. It's about a two hour race. And then um, the North American Championships race was in Vail, Colorado. So I did that individual format and the sprint format. Um, and I was hoping to do more, but you know, schema is getting more popular and I did not sign up for a few of the races I had planned to do in time. So, really? my race so they're, was, they're, they're getting to be like uh, all trail runs now where you have to sign up ah, in advance. Wow. Oh yeah. The power of four is a big race in Aspen and I've never signed up early and I went to sign up and it was full. I couldn't believe it. So it's a good problem, but yeah. Um, good problem for the race organizers for sure. Yes. Um, well, how do you, let's talk a little bit about, you know, tell people that you've had a recent addition to your family. I mean, relatively recent. Um, and I want to know kind of how you've managed to return to training effectively and deal with motherhood and just the time commitments and all of that. I think that's, you know, that's really remarkable. So how, how's that worked out for you? Yeah. You know, Scott, I think um, 
when I was pregnant, I had some issues. I had um, an SI joint that prevented me from being able to run for a good chunk of time. And I had some hiccups along the way in my pregnancy, but for the majority of it, I was able to get out and move most every single day. So a lot of that was mountain biking, which I know people would, some people would frown upon a pregnant lady mountain biking, but I went on trails I've ridden hundreds of times before (laughs) that aren't too technical. And, you know, frankly, you're moving pretty slow. And I took the descents cautiously, but I think being really focused, even though I didn't always want to do it, I was very focused on just trying to get out the door every day during my pregnancy when I was able to. And then coming off of labor and delivery, I just really made it a point every day. And this is just trying to move. Like I had no formal objective or no training plan, but I was just trying to be very deliberate about not having this huge chunk of time where I did nothing. And I think that is what I would credit to getting back to things pretty quickly. And, you know, I think just having been an athlete racing for over 15 years, which I I think isn't terribly long compared to others, but it's just that huge base. It was pretty okay for me to get back into intensity and racing. And um, you and I did a podcast earlier where I very deliberately chose to just set the ego aside and step back into racing, even though I knew I wasn't in good form because that's the best way to get into good form. (laughs) So I, I think it was just relentless effort to keep working towards fitness and working towards race shape. Um, And I would also say I work for myself, so I have a pretty flexible schedule. And I think that I think of, of, women postpartum maybe who don't have a flexible schedule and that is a lot more difficult so I was able to carve out time to get out and do bigger efforts um I will say that was the least prepared I've ever been for the traverse in terms of I only had one day over five hours which typically I'd want like half a dozen to a dozen days over five hours if I could fit it in and I didn't have any races that were that long. So I, I wasn't as prepared as I would have liked to be, but um, I kind of just trusted the process and trusted the accumulation of volume, maybe not despite missing those, those true long days, but it, it seemed like my fitness was pretty good um, given the prior races I had done. So I just trusted and knew I couldn't do anything else about it. So it was what it was going into it. And you've been through that race. So you, and, and many other races like it. So you, you know what you're getting yourself into and you're mentally prepared, even though this sounds like it was worse than you might've even been mentally prepared for But, but how do you manage childcare when you do get out the door to train? Yeah, a lot of that is alternating with my husband. So one of us usually goes really early in the morning and then we alternate and um, getting creative with just a lot of that partnership of, of making sure. And it we're, it's really helpful when you're a team together. So you know that you're only as strong as your weakest link. So we both want to encourage each other to get out the door mm-hmm. um, in that way. It was easier to be, Um, make sacrifices to get the other person out the door as well as ourselves. 
Um, and also we have childcare. I mean, my daughter, Penny, who's six is in kindergarten. So she's at school every day during the week. And then, um, Tegan is six months old. So she's at daycare three days a week. So, um, I would, I'll get up at 4.35 AM to work. I'll work in the evening if I have to. It's a lot of just prioritizing what needs to get done and making sure it fits and finding spaces in the day to fit it is how I look at it. Yeah, and, and being disciplined enough to know that you need to get up at 4.30. If you yes. want to train, you, and you and probably you'd rather train when there's a little light out so you get up and work for a few hours. And uh, so no, that's great. Yeah. It sounds like you've done it really, really well. I know that uh, I'm not being a woman, I don't have that experience, but I certainly have known a lot of female athletes who have gone through these sorts of things. And it, and it does seem like that having, first of all, having that base, that huge base that you've had has probably made a tremendous difference, both preparing you mentally for what it's going to take to get, get yourself back into shape again, um, but also having that physical background so that you could come off, not, not come off the couch, but well, eventually you did come off the couch um, after pregnancy and start training again. And you knew that it was going to be a little rough and tough around the edges for a while but you managed to pull it off. But I think having that base, it's that we talk, of course, about that a lot with uphill athlete, the importance of this base of training that, you know, once you've developed it, yes, it won't be sharp, but it'll come back pretty quickly. And it's a, it's a lot easier to maintain it or to regain it once you've built it, if, if you do lose it. Whereas the first time you're building it, it takes years to, to develop that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And I will say, Scott, I, I know just from anecdotally friends and, and acquaintances that some women have a harder time postpartum. So they have, you know, lingering issues, maybe with their pelvis or um, just general discomfort, some ligament uh, issues, soft tissue issues, all sorts of things. There's like a whole slew of, of things that can be problematic postpartum. So um, while I had a pretty positive fluid experience stepping back into racing, I, I know there's so many women that don't. And I think it's worth mentioning, mentioning that piece as well. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have only recently, not recently, but in, in later in life come to realize, because I've known a number of athlete women who literally were, I mean, one of them in particular here, um, two-time Olympian that I've trained with a bunch, who literally was out training with me on her skis the day before she gave birth and then was back at it a week later. I mean, so there's people like that. And then it was only later that I came to realize, oh, this isn't the norm for women. You know, most women don't bounce back like that. And there's often many that struggle terrifically with these sort of things. And but I do think it's great to see someone like yourself manage to pull this off and and um, you know it's very rewarding for me to to see one of our coaches out doing these things um yeah so i i appreciate that you've you're willing to share some of that with us and and thank you for bringing up the fact that you know it's not universal experience among all women that they're going to come back like you did um you're probably one of the yeah. lucky ones right i mean even just a, a woman who has to have a c-section they're generally advised to not do anything for six weeks um, as it is major abdominal surgery. I mean, I think people forget it. it. It is a big surgery. And so if you're six weeks out of doing nothing, that's, that's hard. That slows you down on the <laughs> bouncing back. 
side of things. So, absolutely, yeah. Sitting, sitting, or being completely vegetative like that, um, which is what you need to do to heal. You know, all those muscles that have to get cut. That's pretty uh, traumatic surgery. And sitting like that, we know that the aerobic, uh, especially the aerobic system, gets hit pretty hard during sed when you're sedentary. Um, mm. But it also bounces back reasonably quickly once you can get back at it. So lose, don't right. lose heart that you, you'll never be fit again. Right. Absolutely. Don't lose heart. That's the takeaway. Um, well, what kind of advice would you have for folks that, since these races are getting so popular, do you have any advice you would give folks that are looking to get into schemo? Um, and especially in particular, the Grand Traverse, because I know that's one of the more popular races in the U.S. Yeah, you know, my advice would be to talk, if they can track anyone down, to talk about the race with, I think that's a great start. I think, I think what people who are new to it, there's, Again, this race is really dynamic compared to a lot of other races. Um, for instance, one example would be um, because it's so flat, I've noticed that my feet, for example, respond differently to being in a ski boot for eight hours than they do in a race that has a lot of vertical. So there's something about the gliding in a ski mo boot for, that it just strains the bottom of your foot way more um, than it would in say the power four. So it's a similar race, but it has 12,000 vertical feet of gain. Um, I mean, similar in duration, but something like that, for example, like I think blisters take people out of that race as much as anything else. It's probably one of the top reasons. So, you know, I, I just noticed people focus a lot on fitness, but there's so much more to it. Like even breaking your feet in for me, that's a huge thing where I'll go skin, um, as part of my prep, I'll go skin up low angle roads just to try to get the bottoms of my feet more prepared, like build up some calluses and just, it seems like if I can work my way into it, it, it tends to go better during the race, which is exactly what happened this race. I didn't have any, any real fit, foot issues, though there was a lot of tape utilized <laughs> to protect the feet. But, and like, even just what we were talking about learning if you don't know how to skate ski, it would be absolutely worthwhile to go get a lesson, for example, because there's a likelihood. Um, I mean, the last, the last seven miles of the race is an, a part called Richmond Ridge, which is this, it's pretty flat generally, but it undulates and it is a popular snow, um, snowmobile area. So you're, if you have the energy, you can skate this whole ridge, which is what Brad and I did. Um, but in, if you choose to skin, that's great too, but it's just, it's so much more dynamic with double pulling, skinning, skiing in terrible terrain, um, <laughs> skiing on terrible snow. So, I mean, if I were coaching somebody, for example, I would have them out doing all this stuff. And I, and I think fitness is just one piece of the pie. And to better wrap your hands around what it really requires, I think is the most important. So that would start with gathering information in conversations and um, that sort of thing. Just getting more of a sense of what the race really requires. 
Yeah, it does sound pretty complicated. It sounds more like some of those, uh, the grand, to grand tour type races, um, schemo races in Europe, where mm -hmm. they're on real mountain terrain, above tree line, often rather dangerous terrain. Um, yeah, it sounds a little more like that. Yeah. I mean, one thing I wanted to make sure to tell you was the team that got second place did it on Nordic skis. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the origin story of the Grand Traverse is it was a Nordic race. So everyone used to do it on Nordic skis. And now hardly anyone does it on Nordic skis. But it was um, Simi Hamilton, who I think is an ex-Olympian. You, oh, you're probably yeah. more familiar I, with Yeah, that. I know Simi pretty well. Yeah. Okay. So Simi and his partner Ben did it on Nordic, which is mine. It, it, it blows my mind. Like what they descended on, on Nordic skis is mind boggling, but they got second. So it was he's a, a very, he's a very strong Alpine skier, downhill skier. So I, I can imagine. Um, he's also an incredibly gifted athlete. Um, and, and actually a, a friend of mine, here local to me here was second on cross country skis in that race about 10 years ago. Um, oh, I think before people had really caught on to kind of the lightweight schemo racing gear and most people were using the lightest touring setup they could find, but it was still quite heavy. And he and his partner, who's a Norwegian cross country ski racer, um, they did it on cross country skis with little kicker skins that they yes. would tape on duct tape, the front of the kicker skin on and um they only lost first place because uh, the last downhill was really moguled up and they had a hard time with that on their they were on skating skis and yeah. um, had a little trouble with that but they were they would have won otherwise um yeah it's uh, I, I could see where that would be a really interesting trade-off in certain conditions i think i bet a person could win that race on cross-country skis in, in something that was a little more uh, gentle snow conditions rather because the breakable crust would have been even worse on skating skis than on oh. on skimo skis because they're so skinny and uh, put a lot of pressure down with those oh my gosh i scott i can't i cannot fathom i wish i could have seen them descend off star pass this is like the steeper area where the snow is really terrible um and that richmond ridge area was basically refrozen snowmobile track with some pretty pitchy downhills. Like I, I, I'm just, like I said, baffled and amazed that they did as well as they did. They must be very good downhill. Yeah. Well, I don't know his partner. I don't know who his partner was, but I do know Simi pretty well. And I used to race with his dad uh, many, many years ago. Oh, so that's kind of how, partly how I know Simi. Um, and then of course through cross country, but yeah, he's, He's, he's kind of in a different league than most. Yes. So, um, well, that's very cool. And, and so I have to ask, how did you guys end up? Uh, we did, we were um, fourth overall and then first for co-ed teams. So Great. Uh, yeah, nice. we knew, yeah, thanks. We knew we couldn't catch like the top three teams. It was the first place team was two two of the best schemo guys, uh, John Gaston and Cam Smith, they, we knew they would not be anywhere on our radar. And then Simi and his partner, Ben also, when you hear, you know, two Olympic Nordic skiers, you're not thinking you can probably hang with them. And then the third team was two more very strong schemo guys. So, um, 
we knew we wouldn't be around them. So Brad calls it the JV. We were, we were battling against the JV, other JV teams. So there was a, there was three or four teams that you were kind of curious to see how it'd shake out. And um, we ended up at faring well. So that was really fun. Very imp- impressive. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah. After a, a, another summer of training, and, I mean, this summer, last summer, you weren't able to train as much. So maybe coming into this year, you'll be able to get back out there and get more serious about it, a little more volume in, and um, could be a yeah. great next winter for you. I hope so. Yes, I, I, I really. Thinking I, of hanging up your. Hope you're not thinking of hanging up your skis. No, I can't help myself. Even though I'm approaching 40s here in the next few years, I just until it's not fun, I'll just keep doing it. So. Well, it should be fun. Yeah, you're not. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great a great attitude. Keep it up till it's not fun. Um, so Scott, I think you and Steve should come do the Grand Traverse. Probably. Oh, we could make you um, uphill athlete speed suits. <laughs> yeah, I think we wouldn't, we don't need, that would not be what's slowing us down. Let me point, <laughs> put that to you. That, uh, it would not be the uh, aerodynamic suit that we, was keeping us from being fast. I think in my case, it would be, well, and Steve's too. We're starting to get a little older. Um, that's slowing you us down You would do more. great. I don't believe you, Scott. <laughs> I know you'd do great. Um, no, it does. It, it, it has been appealing to me at times to think about that. I mean, schema racing didn't really exist when I was, you know, didn't exist at all, at least in this country when I was racing. So I didn't, didn't ever have a chance, but it does look, I mean, I think of it as cross-country skiing on steroids. You know, it's that kind of, and I still can't believe the downhills and what people do, the way they just point their skis straight down and those terrible little skis. I mean, I have a pair of schema racing skis myself and I mean, I find them, I'd rather almost ski downhill on a pair of skating skis than a pair of ski mo skis. Oh, <laughs> just... this is why you would do good. You guys could go on Nordic. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to start training, I think, for that. Maybe that's my goal for next year. Okay. I like think you that. should. Yes. Have it on the, per- on the radar. That would be great. I'll see if I can talk my partner into that. Um, <laughs> Well, thanks, Nikki. It's been fun to catch up with you and uh, really impressed with that what you've pulled off here. Um, you know, part of it's, I guess, I've been in the dark and not known exactly what you've been up to. But so thanks for bringing me and everybody else up to speed. But I think oh, this result uh, at the Grand Traverse is proof that you've still got some some years ahead of you, I think. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I'd encourage any, anyone in the listening audience, when you, when you see people finish that race, whether it took them eight hours or 15 hours, people just are so thrilled and feel such a sense of accomplishment. So I'd say even if you're a novice and it's on the radar, you should just do it because it is really hard, but really, really rewarding. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, it would be a great accomplishment for anyone. That's a a great way to end this thing. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thanks, Scott. All righty. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.